Hello and welcome to the Rippling Pages podcast. Great writers making waves with the word, all in conversation with me, Liam Bishop. And today I'm joined by Jen Kalea. Jen Kalea is a writer whose writing has been published widely. Her work has appeared in the London Magazine and the Review of Contemporary Fiction, while her translation of the German writer Marianne Poshman's The Pine Islands saw her shortlisted for the International Man Booker Prize, an award both recognising of the author and the translator. In the last year, she has set up Prasbar Press with Kat Starache, promoting emerging and new writers in the Maltese language. And she has also published a book of short stories, I'm Afraid That's All We've Got Time For, published by Prototype Publishing, and Goblins, published by Rough Tread Books. And it's these two books she's here with me to discuss today. Often in your stories, uh, I felt like there was a tension between what is on the surface, the reality of appearances, we might call it, but also the reality of a deeper concealed meaning. It's also felt like you were giving the reader a limited amount of time to view and understand that deeper meaning. So I wondered from where do these stories emerge and what elements compel you to sit down and develop an idea for a story? Firstly, I really view my stories as stories in that I, you know, I'm not really interested in replicating uh, reality, I suppose. I, I really like playing with the fact that anything that is is kind of in a written form is is not real and therefore you know doesn't have to you know relate completely to what we experience in the in the kind of shared reality so for instance i think that comes out as my stories being quite bare bones um i don't go into a lot of description and like you say there isn't really a lot of time for the reader maybe to get a grasp often of what is going on and it can come across as quite strange and disorientating. Um, and I think that comes from the, the reason I write like that is that I start with an obsession that then gets expressed through story. So the story is me exploring a social question or a political question or a personal question that I then perform through text or through through a story and uh, I, I want it to be as disorientating for the reader as it is for me when I'm in that space so I'm you know I'm not trying to offer an answer or, or kind of um, safe and complete world I'm more interested in the reader kind of grasping and grubbing along with me as I'm I'm trying to explore this these kinds of very vague disorientating dreamlike scenarios which are my thinking through things yeah the word that came to me is uncanny at times and Mm -hmm. dream Um, and we talk a lot about dreams and dreaming in relation to art perhaps too much but I thought with your stories and the collection um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for is uh, as if a signal towards the limited time we're going to have to understand what's presented to the reader in the stories yeah, completely. Um, and the title is referring to, I think, the the briefness of the story. So m- most of them, I would say, you could describe as being quite short or quite brief. Some of them maybe even on the longer, longer flash <laughs> to, to get a bit more specific. But um, yeah, the title is referring to how kind of brief and sometimes shocking that experience is in the stories you know you're you're I I can I kind of throw some quite jarring things out there and suddenly it's finished it's gone and 
Um, the title, as I've spoken about before, I think is also referring to, so it almost is also indicating to the reader that these are just quick tales. They're, they're not, um, they're not, uh, they haven't been worked on for years and years and years. They're, they're very brief moments of writing that I've, that I've created. And that's not to say then they're not good or they're not um, the best that I could do, but they, I, I really like having a temporal parameter that I'm like, today I will write a story and maybe it gives them a bit of immediacy, if that makes sense. I don't know if, I, somewhere did you say that some of these stories come from, they are written quite uh, from a, a, a long time ago or relatively uh, when you were sort of late teens. I, I don't know if that's right or not. Uh, yeah, like early 20s. Yeah, yeah 20s, I think um, maybe even one of them was published um, in like the Goldsmith Student Magazine, I think, <laughs> when I was still there. I mean, that's when I started writing and publishing was when I did my undergrad at Goldsmiths. Um, right, okay many years ago now uh, there's a lot of I think um, time is definitely on a lot of people's minds at the mm. moment and yeah I, I graduated from Goldsmiths in 2009 and I'm turning 35 this year and that that just all seems you know it's quite bizarre even to think you know I've been to say I've been publishing my creative writing since for like 10 years yeah. is is wild to me because it still feels like the beginning. Well, it's a, perhaps it's a bit of a tragic irony. It wasn't this book published literally the day that we went into, or the week before lockdown. Yeah, it was. <laughs> the 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 launch got cancelled, maybe like forty eight or seventy two hours before, because it was in that very strange week where the conversation went from, "Oh, this is all a bit strange," and I wonder if we should um, you know, cancel that coffee or not go for that drink. And then suddenly within 24 hours or something, the emails started coming in of, oh, can we cancel that meeting? Or we're actually not going to be in the office anymore. And then mysteriously having to cancel this launch that I'd been waiting for for like a year. And um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, it was really quite shocking. I was kind of dazed because um, I would, I'd been kind of, um, what's the word? I don't know. Building myself up to that, and uh, that the book wouldn't even feel real if there wasn't a launch. And in a sense, the book does, still doesn't really feel real, even though it's coming up to nearly a year now because of that. I, I've still never seen the book in a bookshop because I've I haven't been out. So yeah. Um, it's really strange though. I look at my friend's Twitter, and he tweeted the your book today, and it was very odd. Um, so I paid. I paid him to make sure he did that. <laughs> Very good. Um, <laughs> within the book, uh, I noticed a lot of references to bridges uh, in the stories in the collection. Two of the stories, a town called Distraction, and apart from when bridges play a pivotal role in the character's literal journey as well as psychological journey, if we want to call it that. I think. I mean, awareness of of um, what you're writing is a very strange one because it's often only right at the end um, or like years later that you you realise you have these kinds of focuses on certain things. And I think when um, this collection was all finished, I realised that I talk about food a lot and I talk about water a lot. 
Um, and these aren't things that I had picked up on when I was um, writing it. And then Bridges, I mean, in a town called Distraction, I needed, the bridge was kind of a device because um, the story is about someone running late. Um, and I needed something that would, you know, that it would be devastating if they missed their chance to do something. And often nowadays, if you're if you're running late for something or if you're late for something, there's no real repercussions. It's very rarely that if you if you're late for an appointment or you're late meeting a friend, you know that they're, they're, that it's that serious. So that the idea in this is that there's a kind of town that's not really in our reality, but it's kind of on an island that has very specific. Um, times for when a bridge will lower that you can then make it off to another place so um, you know it creates real tension because we're aware as the reader that there's only a certain slot that the character has to get in order to make it across the bridge um, and if they and yet their behavior makes them show or shows that they they're not taking it seriously at all and um, that they're super distracted by every every single aspect of their life so that was a device um, and then another bridge um, I think in the final story is um, because that story is kind of set in my hometown of Shore and by Sea so that's a real bridge and a lot of the, the kind of scenery that I describe is directly inspired by Shoreham but I didn't really notice the bridge connection I mean the first thing that came to mind was that in one of the bands I play in Sony Youth, we have a song called The Bridge. So I must have sung about the bridge perhaps, <laughs> hundreds of times in my life. So maybe that's where it came from. Perhaps I've read too much into bridges. Um, <laughs> there, there is, I mean, I've been reading your poetry as well. There's a poem called Fortress and there's stuff about kind of castles and these kind of perhaps more fabulistic. No, completely. I think um, I... I'm kind of obsessed I mean I talk about it all the time but I am obsessed with fairy tales and fables and I think all the imagery and symbolism that comes with it I mean there's nothing better than a castle and you know the, yeah the symbolism of that um, and in that poem as well of you know the self being a fortress and you can lower the bridge or you can keep the bridge up um, yeah we're going to talk about a bit more about your fabulism and all that kind of thing. Um, but I was just wondering about um, Literary Quartet, set during a prize-giving ceremony at a literary awards gala. At first, well, to me, um, or to others, it might appear as a kind of parody of the literary scene, but it's not the only story featuring a writer or an artist as a protagonist. So I think I think the story is it's more than a meta-commentary on writing. Uh, it's, it's more elevated than that. Um, and I was wondering across you know, various arts and disciplines that you're involved in, what might you consider the identity of a writer to be in this modern age? The, the idea of that story being a kind of parody or a, you know, a very meta exploration of being a writer, I suppose um, I was interested in how I could write about um, the kind of machinations in say the publishing industry and um you know all the things that are going on besides the act of being a writer without coming across as being really cynical or sounding very bitter um and i think it's just 
from being from working behind the scenes in publishing you know as an editor or working um as a translator and a writer and having a lot of experience with things like the way writers are marketed or not even that but just being having this awareness of of how you see um writers being promoted or um talked about i think um i did want to create this again this kind of parallel um space with this prize that really just talked about the elephants in the room for me of um noticing um certain privileges given to certain writers but like i said i didn't want it to come across as cynical because that's not very interesting so i, I wanted it to i wanted to make sure that the writer has a real conflict about you know she kind of resents what she sees as maybe unfair advantage but also she is complicit in it and she's trying to figure out where her lines are because at certain moments you might think well is she being a bit hypocritical um and she's also drawing comparisons between um something that happened with one of the other characters in the story and another event that happened in her life so it's also drawing connections between what why something feels icky in writing um and how that also links up to other kind of icky things that have happened in her life um specifically i suppose as a woman author um so it's really fun i mean originally that story was terrible because it was kind of like um i was <laughs> i think originally i made that story as like a secret writer whatsapp group of all these writers um kind of bitching about the publishing industry and it was just terrible it was really boring um it wasn't nice to read and you you just didn't like any of those characters so um i'm much happier obviously with the way literary quartet came out mind if i ask what uh icky might mean in this to you or to the to the, to the character in the story well, I suppose she, um, I mean, there's a, there's something, I don't want to really give it away, but there's, no, um, it, it, um, you know, it transpires in the story that she has had past dealings with one of the judges of this prize. And it makes, this, this experience she had with this judge reminds her of um, an unpleasant experience that had happened earlier that day and she draws connections between the behaviour. So it's it's kind of like drawing the parallels um, of, say, in this instance, kind of sexism or misogyny um, across the different areas of her life and making those connections. So it's kind of like these aren't isolated experiences that happen in certain realms of your life, say in writing or, um, you know, or in your job that that it's something that permeates the whole of society and it's all connected and that it all comes out in different ways within institutions. Yeah, so I think that's what I mean by icky. But then also um, icky also meaning that, um, you know, say publishing is part of an industry that it's um, often romanticised, but there are structures and there's hierarchies and there's kind of institutional powers at play so things that on the surface seem very natural um are there's often a lot of money behind them so things like reviewing culture or promotion or the way books are hyped or the placement of books um the way authors are presented in author portraits or 
where they get interviewed and 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 things like this. I think to the outsider, these things seem um, as a matter of course. But obviously, if you're if you have any awareness or experience within the publishing industry, you know that often these things are constructed. And I think it's really interesting what you were saying about the other kind of artists and writers that are at play in the story collection. Um, sometimes um, people say, oh, writers shouldn't write about writing or writers shouldn't write about writers. And I think kind of why? I mean, it's it, it's like any other subject. It's like I'm interested in I'm interested in the what's behind things and why people behave the way they do and, and, and things like this. So it's, it's the same in the other stories where writers appear. It's kind of like they're, they're obsessed with their own myth and they're obsessed with their own place within um, a wider uh, industry. So that say the writer in the final story, they've kind of alienated themselves from their hometown because they think that now that they live in a city and they've become a writer they're above everything which has just caused them sadness and pain <laughs> and then the, the artists in um, one of the other stories uh, due process which is about um, two, two sister artists that is also about um, feeling conflicted about playing playing up to an industry and and being a creative person within an industry because you're not you're not creating within a bubble if, if it's something that you you want to pursue say as a career basically yeah and these two the two artists in that so they go their separate ways but it's very embedded within one person's consciousness and i guess the theme of the early theme of these interviews that we've done is it's definitely not about a behind the scenes of the publishing industry but it's certainly about the rooms that we write in and about how we find that space and the kind of things we do have to negotiate it's still a story about theme that i think you're trying to sort of explore of a, a constructed reality that might be sort of sometimes cohering with a, with one person's sort of mind of that but also sort of rubbing against and, and dissonant with kind of expectations week 23 I went out hunting again today after a fortnight of misses. I've had intense encounters. I won't lay them all out here. It would take too long to explain. And I've gone over them all with Reza in detail already. This balance between attraction and disgust has been especially challenging. Just when I believe I'm ready to give myself up to one of these men, to seal the deal on a better, more secure life for my family, I leave in a hurry or I have to go throw up. I even puked over a Gary I met at ye old Cheshire Cheese. I felt so tired today I sat in grind on Threadneedle Street and waited like a spider in a web. I made sure I was facing the door so I could see my prey, and so it could see me. Around 11.30, an older man in a grey suit, white shirt, no tie, brown brogues, no socks, smooth back, shoulder-length grey hair, came in holding the handle of a black leather satchel. He surveyed me with a look of surprise, cocking his head to one side as if he recognised me, then looked down, clearing his throat, and approached the counter to order. I was sitting on the only table, high, small and circular, surrounded by two high stools with grey cushioned seats and low backs. It was a struggle to climb up onto one when I got there around eight. When I was nursing my cold fresh mint tea and pointing at my out-of-focus eyes at the white neon sign on the wall behind the counter that read, Can't Buy Me Love, the man brought over his black coffee, sat opposite me and drew out his laptop to work. 
I didn't want to waste my time on someone who wasn't rich and was about to move to the bar positioned at the window when I noticed the scent he was wearing made my mouth water. It was citrusy but heavy with sandalwood. It had to be expensive. And I don't know anything about watches, but his looked completely unique, personalised. If I looked closely enough, I could see the watch face was a scene of a man with a child over his knee, and with every strike of the second hand, his arm would sharply tick to spank the child's backside, while the child's arms and legs twitched. The fabric of his tailored suit was an almost imperceptible mesh of a variety of colours, perfectly attuned to that silver grey, like a faultlessly balanced plate of food. It did just make me wonder, actually, what are our rewards from... Um... You know, what's your rewards from, from this book? Besides, you know, money, there will be some kind of monetary reward. This can vary from, from writers across the board, but I don't know if you can answer. Um, yeah, I think in terms of money, the, you know, publishing with small independent publishers, I've talked about this before, that the financial side is pretty low because... Um, that's the reality of, of kind of uh, small independent publishing. But the actual gains are massive. You know, the, getting to work with um, Jess Chandler at Prototype um, for both Serious Justice, the poetry collection, and I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. It's just been amazing. I mean, she really sets the bar for me um, for how I want an editor-writer process to be. Um, she's so enthusiastic and professional and supportive and, and the editing process was really wonderful and I felt really cared for as a writer and you know she we, we've talked a lot this year in the process of the book coming out and um, has she's just been yeah amazing so I think um, there's a there's a payoff because it's very different from say working with a, a large publisher where there's a lot of pressure on you to, to not only create um, perhaps a more specific and refined kind of book, but also that it will sell a lot. And that um, also, you know, working with a bigger publisher, they might have a lot more authors that they're working with. So um, that's what I get from it. And I, I, you know, creating this book was incredibly affirming having written for so long to then have a, a collection of short stories come out was, um, I don't know, I suppose it proved to me that I should keep writing and I should keep trying. And that's been very difficult this year, especially where, you know, especially when the, there was no launch, et cetera, where there were moments where I was thinking, you know, is there going to be a future in writing? Is there is there a future in publishing and creating more books? Um, but then I've come, I've come full circle again now, a year on, where I feel very positive about writing and I feel positive about um, this book having come out. So, yeah. Well, I'm pleased to hear it, and I'm sure listeners are as well. Um, but it's worth saying as well that this, um, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a lovely edition that, uh, that, that has been published, the book itself. They are very nice editions that uh, Prototype produce, and as do a lot of other independent uh, publishers as, as well. Well, let's go on to uh, the other book that you published last year, um, Goblins. Now, it's a wonderfully short, but it's a discursive and ex expansive book. I think it's, under, it's 40 pages, uh, like sub-50 pages, but I absolutely love this book. I love short stories, of course, too. Um, 
But there's something about Goblins that you wrote in collaboration with Rachel Louise Hodgson, the artist. Um, I just wondered if you could give us a bit more uh, about Goblins and what might have inspired you to write that. Yeah, so I think what's amazing is the Rough Trade books pamphlet series. Again, I really like having parameters. So in this case, it wasn't so much time, although that did play something in that was kind of part of it, but the idea that you only have this very small amount of pages and you can't, you know, it can't be double, it can't even be a few pages more, it has to be quite specific um, in the parameters of how big it can be was really freeing. Um, and these are, I think, these are things that I've just wanted to write about for a really long time, but couldn't really see a connection between them. And then I think it all just came about that I just kept describing things as goblins and I, kept, I wondered why I was making this kind of definition. So I had to create my own definition. I think everyone, when they're a child or in their teens, you kind of make up words for things. And um, I, yeah, I found myself using this word a lot. And then suddenly, the after thinking about all these things for a very long time, the connections formed and I could see where they all linked up together. And, and in terms of Rachel Louise Hodgson, I was just a real fan of her work. I was following her on Instagram and she makes these really gross, really joyful, uh, sometimes quite violent pictures. And it was almost like she was creating work that absolutely matched up to what Goblins was. So I'd already started writing it and um, Nina, at Rough Trade said, can you think of any illustrators or artists that could um, provide work for the pamphlet? And I didn't want it to be just anything. And I was thinking about commissioning someone, but then I came across these pictures and instantly it had everything. It had puppets um, that she'd made. Um, she had work. It reminded me of Paola Rego, who features in the pamphlet as well. Yeah, so it seemed like a match made in heaven. And I, I kind of fangirled and I emailed her and I said, could you possibly think or consider having your like, amazing art in my stupid little pamphlet about my silly little life? And she was so enthusiastic about it. So I'm still kind of overwhelmed that she, um, you know, let me use her work and she she liked the writing and what I'd written. And that meant a lot as well. Well, yeah, you, you've talked about um, in a Brixton review of books, which you write a column for, one of the sentences I booked out from your recent piece about uh, Murakami every book every creative act is always a collaboration and now that's more explicitly here you've talked about getting in contact with uh, Rachel Louise Hodgson but I wondered for all the kind of disciplines that you work in the art all the kind of different involvements you have short stories translation I think you're writing a novel you're doing PhD musician do you have to find some way to sort of collaborate with yourself in this pro is there a process of collaboration with yourself perhaps yeah, I think it's it's a whole mindset, I think, thinking collaboratively about everything. You know, collaboration is the link to everything that I do. It's collaboration and communication. And I, I like this idea of, yeah, collaborating with the self. I think um, I'm used to, as a writer and a translator, and also, I suppose, playing in a band is is constantly carrying the different ways of seeing something from every single angle and um, being open to not wanting to control something, but being really open to other views and other opinions, be it like making 
music in a band or as a translator not making assumptions about what something means but looking at a sentence or a word from every single angle and trying to think what every single different person might possibly interpret in that sentence so yeah I think in terms of like collaborating with the self it's yeah it's maybe constantly obsessively questioning everything that you write and thinking well how is someone going to read that and um is it going to come across the way I want it to come across and that takes time and not to assume that because I get what I've written or I get the image being that I'm trying to write that everyone else will so yeah I think it that's what it comes down to it comes to um not jumping to conclusions about anything <laughs> and you don't give conclusion you don't allow conclusions really to um well from my from my reading I couldn't come to a conclusion of what had really happened here there wasn't a given there was nothing sort of given I don't know if that's sort of questioning with yourself I'm sure it must be a more um, I'm sure it must be a really nutritional process for creating uh, some, you know, some writers get very bogged down by <laughs> what's you know is this going to work and that but it, it, either way it's, it's very conducive to what you do uh, ultimately create and you talked about you I mean you've mentioned being a musician and, and that's you do talk about your I mean you called it your silly little life <laughs> Jen, but I, don't think <laughs> I think I, I think you've been uh, a bit hard on yourself there but um, I am yeah I'm only joking good um, but this, this this idea of goblins is um, it's fluid because it, you refer to you refer to yourself as a goblin sometimes or your child version of as a goblin uh, but then you also talk about some interactions you've had whilst touring as a musician um, and some pretty kind of very unpleasant and not pleasant interactions with people and it, but I wondered how does this idea of goblins manifest within your life and how did you know how was it putting that on the page yeah so I think the the main principle of of got the interpretation of a goblin is that it can be someone good and it can be something good to be a goblin but it can also be something bad or someone bad and that the thing that links them is a it's almost like we don't have the words for it but it's it's um a selfishness and also a presence so it really depends on who is being the goblin and why they're being the goblin so for instance if it's somebody who is um throwing their weight around to try and control other people or to harass other people or to to use their power in some way to get their own ends that is obviously a bad goblin but then you can also be you know in in the pamphlet i'm charting my goal of wanting to become a goblin and my personal interpretation of becoming a goblin is to be a fearless performer to um, feel in control of a space you know I think everyone has maybe their personal goblin goals of you know when it's kind of like maybe it's the ultimate form of self you know what what would it take for you to feel successful and Will you, do you have to let go of a bit of, of fear or do you have to feel um, you, you feel happy with the way you appear or the way that you feel in yourself? So it's, yeah, it's it's got many different interpretations. There's not one way of defining it, but it, it comes down to feeling, I suppose, satisfied with yourself 
in a, in a in a way and feeling in control. Goblin goals. Goblin goals. Goblin goals. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, well, in that you talk in goblins, you talk a lot about the films you watched as a child, uh, Labyrinth, uh, Return Towards. Talk about the terror they gave you, and imagine they gave a lot of other children as well. These uh, child's films, and I'm talking, you know, in inverted commas there from the eighties, but not to mention some adults that they terrify as well. And, Admission here, I, I never watched Labyrinth until this week, so I watched it in preparation. And it's absolutely, it's the most bizarre thing I've ever watched. <laughs> um, that, I like I like hearing about people that have only watched it now because I wish I kind of wish I could have that experience of of being a an adult and watching that for the first time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if if ever as a kid or if I was an adult, I don't know if I would have felt even more freaked out as a. I think I'm more freaked out as an adult. I think so, projecting back. <laughs> Um, but, but I didn't expect Bowie to be like a bad guy either. I don't think, mm-hmm. and he's incredibly, <laughs> incredibly sort of tight tights and uh, costume yes. design was there's a bit of a budget there. I think wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I, I I do digress. But I get this 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 sense of terror that um, is something that you're trying to recreate or understand perhaps in the book. Uh, and I'm thinking back to that quote about um, all books are a collaborative act. Can a book help us, or can the act of writing help us translate experiences which might not have always been accessible to us? Yeah, completely. Um, I think there there is some pushback sometimes around this idea of, for instance, assuming that writers are exploring their own lives in their, say, fiction and poetry. But I think um, it was nice the other day reading an interview with um, Megan Nolan where she says, well, actually, for my work or the, the novel she's just bringing out, um, that's a completely legitimate thing to say because it is based on experience. And I think um, a lot of the poetry collection and then obviously with Goblins, which is is kind of memoir, essay, and then with I'm Afraid That's All We've Got Time For, a lot of it is me working through um, a lot of things that have happened in my life. And that that's kind of that kind of makes sense for me. Not all of it, but, you know, a lot of it... Um, in, in Serious Justice, it's looking at quite a lot of kind of child childhood trauma. And, you know, you have there's a fine line, isn't there, between just kind of describing events and, you know, you know, isn't was me writing it purely just for me to work out some things, or was it me trying to communicate and share it so that other people can be part of that experience and to think back about their own experiences? It's, it's a really tricky one and sometimes it's successful and sometimes it's not. Um, but, you know, writing Goblins was incredibly cathartic. It was amazing getting some of that stuff down that I'd kept very secret because of, you know, this thing of, of shame. And then part of being a goblin is that you have no shame. So even writing the pamphlet is me saying, well, I'm a goblin. And I'm going to talk about all these things that I couldn't tell people, you know, really shocking things for some people kind of like, you know, these um, encounters with older men and having um, a, a miscarriage. And it's things that I literally just could never talk about because I felt like I would be judged. So writing it down, you know, it kind of made me want to giggle because it was like, oh, this is really naughty to to say all these things. But then it's like, it's all part of my life and it's it's part of me. And what does that mean? Everyone should write their own goblins, I think. If anyone can get their hands on this book, just make you know, just do because it's a it's a really kind of hopeful book uh, and about embracing parts of ourselves and our histories that 
that we can't always do and we can't always allow ourselves to do, I don't think, like you like you said. Um, so, yeah, I really hope listeners do pick that up. Um, so in Goblins and in the films that we just mentioned, you express uh, a kind of dissatisfaction in them as well, particularly the morals that they impart and Sarah's false epiphany from, uh, from Labyrinth. Now, I just wonder for people who are picking up your work, people who are trying to write, how important is it that you do impart a different philosophy or how might we do that without being too kind of clear and obvious? Well, there's different reasons that people write. And I think not everyone wants to write or should write because they want to put forward um, a message um, necessarily, or sometimes the form is the is the message, you know, that using something, you know, trying different things out for the sake of it and and being playful, you know, there's a place for all kinds of writing. But I think for me personally, I think going back to those ideas of fairy tales or formative stories, I think, for instance, with Labyrinth, imagining that Labyrinth is a is a fairy tale like any other story that you, you're, you're kind of brought up with. Um, and I talk about how I didn't really read a lot as a child. It was mainly television. The false epiphany that, that Sarah has of it's not fair. Oh, but that's, that's the way it is. Um, you know, how when you're younger, you, you do absorb these messages. So in Goblins, I'm, I talk about how at the time it felt very right that that would be a message of kind of like, oh, just let go. And don't if, if things feel like they're getting to you, just um, don't worry about it because there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and how now that I'm older and have become more involved in um, activism and and again becoming more serious as a writer, just thinking about you know imagining that reader, maybe a younger reader. Um, possibly reading one of my stories and thinking, I wonder what could get embedded in their mind that could change their life. And I think it's being quite hopeful about what writing can do, that writing can be revolutionary. And, and one of the stories, um, you know, the, one of the main characters um, in The Debt Collector, at the beginning of the story, she's reading Leonora Carrington on a bench. And you can you can assume as the reader, if you wanted to, that reading Leonora Carrington kind of propels her to change her life. And so that's connected to that, that idea of, you know, maybe we could, we could read something that will spur us on to do something, to be it a good thing or a bad thing, basically. So I think I'm, I'm interested in the fable power of my own stories, imagining them as these um, artifacts that might go out and change the world and not in a kind of arrogant way, but it's just the way I picture them, that they're just sto they're stories and that stories can change us um, and that the messages we embed within them could do something incredible. It can, it can create a whole ideology in someone like with Labyrinth, how for years that became a rallying cry for me and other people um, as young people so you know that's just a line in a film and it's amazing to think maybe a line in a story could become someone's entire mode of living if you see what I mean absolutely yeah and um, either way that line has provided you with 
And I think this is important as well. It's not something that just sort of inspires you to do, you know, from a place of goodness. It's inspired you to work against something as well, I think. It's not... It's not just the way it is, and it's not just the way it is in your stories either. And this kind of sense of reality, does it just all comes back to this, these worlds that you are sort of trying to, or you do construct. You know, it isn't just the way it is. It definitely, you know, presented appearances aren't uh, in, you know, in life and obviously in your stories as well. Well, uh, Jen, Kalea, and I would, I hope with your next piece of work that you might want to come again and have a chat with us sometime else. But for now, thank you very much, Jen, for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. That's it for today's episode of the Rippling Pages podcast. My thanks again to Jen Collier for joining me. And of course, my thanks to you for listening. Now you can buy Jen's book from Rough Trade Publishing and Prototype Publishing respectively. And join me next time when I'm going to be joined by the Montenegrin writer, Olya Kinesovich. <laughs>